0: about how he uniquely brings glory to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of God. We thank you that all of it is inspired. Every every jot and tittle has been written down by you, Lord. It does not need to change because it's your words because you don't need to change. You are immutable. And so is the word of God, and we believe that, Lord. And in a society that absolutely hates your design, For the family, we know this grinds hard against the world. But for those who love you and love your word, we know that you have laid down a plan for our lives, male or female. And you've given us a way to bring you unique glory, Lord. And so, Father, as we teach a passage that the world disdains, cause us to love it. Cause us to appreciate it and learn Cause us to be challenged that we would glorify you in our roles, Lord. Father, we thank you for each and every one that's here, those long-term members here, uh, maybe some new folks that have come in today, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your church. It truly is yours, Lord. And we thank you that you continue to build it here at Riverbend. Be with those who couldn't be with us today. Some are home, recovering. Some are sick, Lord. Some, Some are towards the end of their life, Lord. They've run well, Lord. Help them finish this race, Lord. Be with our missionaries. We love them. We're so grateful for them. May you empower them and strengthen them today as they serve you around the world. Now, Lord, give us ears to hear and willingness to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen for a long time that the family plays a very important role in society. We see that that's God's plan, and he has instituted his plan even into this world and it's god's world isn't it he's creator so he's owner though it is in a fallen state and uh uh very astray from what god intended it to be it is god's word, world now he created the family and so he has the right to define the family well, these are things i want to just nail down before we get going right He created the family, so he has the right to define the family. That's God's prerogative as creator and owner of all humanity and the world, doesn't he? And so the created family has two great reasons to live it out. One is to carry out God's will. And two, to be an example of truth in his glory. Right? We, as God's family, as he intended us to be, men and women... In our gender roles, God wants us to be exemplary to his truth and for his glory. That's what he's called us to do. Now, if the true family comes from the mind of God, which we certainly believe it does, then it plays an essential role in this world. And don't, don't you think this explains why there's so many attacks on the family right? If God's intention, if it's the mind of God to put a family into this world, male and female, husband and wife, children, and all of that, if that was God's intent, it's very easy to understand Satan hates it, and there are constantly attacks on it. Now, it's pretty clear that Satan is no friend of the family, right? And I want you to think about this. Satan wants to disrupt the family any way he can. He disrupt, disrupts it um, By bringing uh, a thinking that is godless and pagan. I thought about this week. He disrupts it by trying to stop people from bringing more image bearers into the world. Abortion. Every child, every one of us is an image bearer of God by his own decree. One of the greatest attacks of Satan is abortion. Abortion. Because he does not want more image bearers of God in the world. And all of the movement to decrease population is on the side of Satan. Have you ever put those two together? Satan hates the population of the world because it's more image bearers of God. He also disrupts these pictures of family and Unity and all that God has done, because it helps us understand the Trinity. And it helps us understand the relationship from the Father and the Son and the Spirit, because there's submission and there's subordination within the Trinity. And we'll see that today. It helps us understand that God saves people when when we see the family living the way God is intended, how Christ and his church relate to one another, how we relate to one another, how husbands and wives lead and submit and all of that beautiful role. Oh, Satan hates that and does not want it on display. And so it's no wonder that the family is such a battleground today, isn't it? And I'm sure you've seen it. But listen, I want you to hear this. It is not just attack on the general families. It's an attack on your family. This is personal. God wants us to understand that this is his role that he has laid down for us. This is his design. And so Satan just does not want to destroy families in general no matter what nationality or economic status or whatever it is. He wants to destroy your family. And so he uses battles and marriages and families to bring about his own will. Well, that said, the battleground for womanhood has never been more fierce, I don't think. Maybe. We'll talk about the first century in a minute. But it's heightened, isn't it? The struggle for so-called women's rights often starts with injustices, right? And we see those injustices, and and we're absolutely against those injustices. But that's where it starts. But then it quickly speeds by the biblical balance that God has laid out for roles of men and women. And it lands in this improper threat against God's design. Every time. Every time. And unfortunately, the enemy puts its efforts towards worming its way into the church. It's a huge problem in America's church today. And and this is because too often the church is trying to catch up with what the world's doing. I remember witnessing to a very staunch uh, environmentalist on the difference between a 60-day creation and the glory of God who spoke in his creation and was instantly created versus millions and billions and billions of years And he said, oh, just give it time. We'll wear the church down. They'll come around to old earth and all that. Well, they certainly have done that in many places, haven't they? And the same is true when we get to the family. Satan is trying to wear the church down. Trying to show how uh, unpopular this view that 1 Corinthians 11 has and how weird you are and how you'll be hated if you hold to it. And then churches go, well, boy, you know, we're in the business of getting people saved, so uh, maybe we better not go near that stuff because we, we don't want to cause anybody to stumble, and they, they make justifications for it, and yet they don't teach the full counsel of God's word, and they dishonor him. And the family suffers greatly. And if the family is suffering, then it is not showing the glory of God. Well, in today's world... Not only is there a redefining of biblical womanhood or womanhood in general, but it's coming from inside the church, and they've abandoned these truths, and it hurts to watch it happen. And so here, we don't skip uh, the scriptures. You know we are expositional teachers, and so we teach through passages, even the difficult ones, and we go, oh, okay, all right, Lord, help me say this your way. But we do this. Because we're not going to leap over scriptures, and that's what's happening in today's church. The scriptures are often attacked attack in the sense that everything is first defined by the culture. So instead of going to God's word and looking at it as inspired every jot and tittle of, it of God, we put a lens over the scripture through culture, and they go, well, we can redefine it because of where culture is at. Man, that lands you in a bad spot. It does not land you with God's word. It lands you with your own word that is very fallible, and most likely wrong. That's what happens. Though the culture certainly plays a small role in flushing out a passage like that, and we'll talk about that, it does not dictate the interpretation of Scriptures. And when one fails to rightly divide the Word of God, people will become, listen to this, they'll become the judge over the Word of God. And they'll decide what they believe and what they don't. And that's what has happened, dear friends. Fallen people who need the redemption of Jesus Christ now are judging God's word whether it's true in certain passages or not. Now you don't have a sufficient truth. You have an insufficient truth. You have a cut-and-paste Bible. And we're seeing more and more of that and i set all this up brothers and sisters because this is a challenging text you heard it read didn't you you immediately begin to think if this gets on the news <laughs> that's how powerful and direct this truth is and yet it is not changed we will see it's the same teaching that god gave in the garden it has not changed And yet it's difficult to hear at times. Well, let's drop into the Corinth church. And this was a difficult time in their history as well. There was a sexual revolution that was going on, much like today, in Corinth. The worldly empowerment of women was taking place. It was around the world even. And much of it was finding its power and strength in two places. That was Rome and Corinth. Roman first century feminist movement was on. The sexual revolution was on in Rome. Remember, they had bowed down to so many goddesses through the years. And now that had started to impact the role of pagan women and their view. And when you study what happened in Rome through first century to the fourth, it actually began in the palace where the feminist movement of the day started. And it began to bleed out. You get to Corinth, you find the oracles of Delphi, one of the most pagan, godless religions in the world, finding its home just right outside the city center there. It is led by prophecies, it is led by women priests with over a thousand prostitutes that flooded into the streets daily to push their views. They worship the god of Diana and Aphrodisia and so forth. The women's movement was on. And like today, it was a direct attack against God and his role he laid down for the family. In the middle of all this mess is this church called Corinth. (laughs) Wow, what a church plant. Send me, God. (laughs) What a difficult spot. And they're there, and, and there's the Apostle Paul, and he's revealing the revelation of God as he writes these letters to this church. And there, the divine plan of biblical womanhood is set down in this letter, particularly in chapter 11 here. And they're hearing this great conflicting message of what society is telling them. They are sitting right where we're sitting just 2,000 years ago. Some things never change. The attack on God and his plan for the family does not change. And so God's word has has it changed? His truths are eternal. I want to affirm that. And God's design for the family and for society was perfect from the beginning. And it does not need alteration. I'm going to convince you of that. <laughs> or at least I'm going to use the word of God and let the spirit do it to you. It doesn't need alteration. And so this morning, let's see what the word of God is going to teach us this morning. First thought. First thought. Number one, verse two, building on kindness to speak the truth in love. Look at verse two with me as he starts off this section two through 16. We're going to move quickly this morning. I really want to get through the whole context of this in one lesson. So buckle up here. Here we go. Paul says this, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Well, it's clear Paul is responding to their letter. Remember, there's a letter written. He's responding to different things that they have come to him. And it seems that some of those who are behind this letter have realized that the church is experiencing difficulties in men and women roles. They doubtlessly saw the effects of the world that was starting to happen to the church and individuals. Maybe people who were claiming salvation were coming in and they were coming in with different ideals instead of the biblical ones. And so they put this question of some form forth to Apostle Paul. And they're coming because they don't know how to handle this. They don't know how to glorify God in this difficult social problem that's made its way into the church. And they're afraid that they may be glorifying themselves. So far in Paul's letter, he has shown repeatedly, and here's where the problem lies, that they're very prideful people. (laughs) They have... They have looked to the world for their answers. And therefore, it's really hard to know as I began to study this, whether they truly were seeking God's will through the Apostle Paul or they were trying to justify something. It's difficult to know. And maybe there was a legalistic tendency that was there and they're there upset because women are not performing the way they think they should and maybe that's part of it or finally maybe as we come out of the last section they just are part of freedom we think we're free as christians we can do whatever we want but we're not sure what to do with this and so paul responds to it and it's difficult to know their motive here but i know what paul's going to do he's going to give a holy spirit inspired answer and we still have that answer today. So the apostle starts this section verses 2 through 16 out with a verse that that may have a little spiritual sarcasm in it, but a lot of love and shepherding. Let me read the verse again. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I just as I delivered them to you. Now Paul praises them because they desire God's revelation, right? You can see that. And he desires it in all things. That word in everything means a a real range of issues that Paul has been dealing with. But it's clear here they did not agree with Paul on many things, right? We've seen that. They did not agree with him. The first 10 chapters we found item after item they did not agree with him. And so here, what is their motive here? And, And we don't know we're, uh, they, we don't know what they're holding to um, in these traditions. And I think that's very interesting Paul says that. Paul delivered these traditions. And, and, and here's traditions that I want you to walk in. They honor God. They've heard these traditions. They've heard the answers. They've heard the truth. But now they're looking to Paul to reassure them on these or even maybe redirect them back to them. But I love what Paul does. I, he's, he's a master at this, and I'm trying to learn from him on these things. Paul has a way of seeking to encourage people even when they're obstinate against him. Isn't that good to learn that? Anybody have anybody obstinate against you? I love the way he responds. He he responds with praise and care for them. Now, he does use the word traditions here. We often see that word used in the negative, right? Like the Pharisees. Jesus challenged them. You hold to traditions, not the word of God, right? But here I think it's a real positive way Paul had taught them biblical traditions of how to live their life, even in marriage and male and female roles. And so we see the Bible use traditions in several places as positive. I love the passage in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions, hold to the traditions. And so there are traditions that are good. We should be, uh, as families, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, we should have biblical traditions within our home that are repeatable, and they're done with great joy because God is pleased with them. Now, it's obvious that the Corinth church had been taught good doctrine, but here's the problem. They lacked an application. They, they didn't know how to live out the truth. They, they had developed some biblical traditions, they'd heard the biblical tr- traditions, but their personal lives were the problem, and I think that's very true today of us, isn't it? We're, we can be really good sermon listeners, aren't we? We can fill this beautiful building with people, and, and yet we can be hearers but not doers. That, that's the that's problem, isn't it? And so that's, again, why this is very good for us. But this passage, uh, I've got to say this before I move to my next point, is hated, by many even so-called Christians. And, there's, and I don't think there's another passage that more people have worked at to try to explain away than this text because they just can't palate it. It goes against what they've been raised with in society. So, brothers and sisters, again, buckle up. Put on your biblical thinking hats. Listen to this. Seek to glorify God as you listen and allow his word to direct your path as individuals, as church, as married people, uh, in your gender, and certainly in your roles. And listen, if you disagree, I kindly ask you to listen to God's word today. And let the love of God draw you to obedience. That's how we, that's how we serve the Lord, through obedience and the love of God. Not, not just laying down a list of rules, but because God loves us. Second thought this morning, number two. The divine order of headship, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Well, verse 3 really sets the premise of Paul's argument for the rest of the passage 3 through 16 in this opening statement. You'll notice the little word but there, a little conjunction and it tells you that the time of praise is over. <laughs> Verse 2, you got some praise out of me. I'm thankful for you. I'm glad you're coming to me with everything, even though you've disagreed all the way along. But I'm thankful you're coming. And so he says, but, hold on. I'm going to give you a concrete context of the role of biblical manhood and womanhood and God's view of the Trinity. And, and, and this is what will keep the gospel from being washed away by the tide of secularism here. So Paul's goal is to return. I I firmly believe this. His goal is to return the dignity and honor that God intended men and women to have all the way back to the garden. That's his goal in this passage. Uh, when, When men and women have given up on the biblical roles that God so clearly lays down, you lost your honor and your glory when we do that, people. And he's showing that in this text. And you certainly lost the ability to give him glory. So here today and in Corinth, society has swung from great abuse to great empowerment. That's what they do. There's, there, and there's no doubt there was great abuse of women going on up to the first century and, and all the way to today. There still is abuse going on. But man, because he doesn't believe the word of God, he swings the pendulum and he goes by the biblical standard and he empowers something he should never empowered. And then we have problems and we have the rejection of God's plan. Now, as a result, Paul begins to lay down the biblical universal truths about submission and headship. That's what he's doing here. So he starts with a submission of Christ because he's the greatest example. I tell men and women all the time, keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the best leader and he's the, the best at showing what submission really looks like, right? And so here he starts with that. And because of his submission, we have salvation. Just think about that. Let that sink in a minute. Because Christ submitted to the Father, we're saved. So he starts with that. And whoever does not submit to Christ, right, as Lord and Savior, they fall into his eternal judgment. And if men don't submit to the headship of Christ, their marriage and their family, along with society, will suffer great consequences, and if women do not submit to men, the consequences are much the same. Their marriage, their family, and society suffers. And we've seen it over and over and over. So Paul is showing that submission is evident in the Trinity, and it's evident in society. He's going to make his point. Now, he uses the word head there, and that refers to the part of the body that is has rule and authority, right? We'd like to think our heart is leading us, but it's usually our head. <laughs> right the head has the nervous system all through it right all our motor skills voice skills all of that comes from that and so it's referring to that part of the body that has head has rule and authority over all other parts and so he does this and he wants to show this in three different ways to show that headship is is what god is talking about and this is a de- he has a desire for this to be understood number 1 he says christ is the head of every man now christ has the supreme authority over the redeemed right He's the head of the church. We talk about that all the time. The elders are are under shepherds here. We work for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. And he has supreme authority, not only over the church, but he also has supreme authority over unbelievers because he'll be the final judge, right? So at at his resurrection, his father father gave him everything under heaven and earth. uh, God's word says that um, Matthew 28, 18, right? And then there's a day where every knee and every tongue, uh, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, ultimate ruler of all, is the statement there, to the glory of the Father. So those, those who submit to Jesus Christ, they are his precious bride. If you submit to Christ, and you've laid down all of your own letter, efforts, and you come to God completely empty-handed, only through Jesus Christ, you belong to him and you are his precious bride. You are his church. But those who do not submit to him as Lord and Savior, they are called the world. That's how the Bible refers to them. And they're controlled by the one who works in the sons of disobedience. So he's showing what the true headship is. Jesus Christ is head of all. He's the head of every man, believer and unbeliever. Now, two, the man is the head of the woman. Now, there's a lot of people have no problem with one in three, right? They have no problem with Christ as head of the church and God as the head of Christ. They have no problem. It's that middle one that trips them up. This is difficult. This isn't fair. You hear all these arguments. This one really rocks their world, doesn't it? See, Paul now begins to teach the God-given principle of authority that man has over woman. And there are some that try to sequester uh, this statement only to marriage as husbands and wives, but that's not what it says. Uh, the Greek is very clear. He's talking about male and female. But as we will see throughout this argument that Paul is defending God's creator order, not only just for marriage, and certainly this applies to marriage, but for society in many ways. Now, the egalitarian movement, you know what that is. That's um, those who claim to be believers, who are within the Christian church, who uh, believe that these passages are no longer um, inspired or useful to uh, the church, and they attempt to fight these verses, then they use places like Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight, where it says they are neither Greek nor Jew, nor neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female for you're all one in Christ. And so what they do, as they always do, they take out of context, and and they miss the beauty of our holy position, completely equal as saved people in Jesus Christ, and they use these verses to teach their view, and it's wrong. They take them out of context. And then when we teach them in context, as God intended, we're male chauvinists and we're haters. And yet, it isn't hard to read this text and see clearly what God is saying. So listen, the the Scriptures make no distinction between men and women in in their value, in their abilities, in their intellect, even in their spiritual achievements. In in fact, and maybe too often, I think this is because of lack of men stepping up and growing spiritually, women display a far greater maturity in, in a spiritual intellect than men do sometimes. Because they've failed to pour themselves into the word of God. But listen, God established a male headship for the purpose of order and a complementarianism. He wants them to complement one another. This is God's plan. And so the church may have women, and I think that might be true even in this room, that have some deep theological thinkers and believers and understand the scriptures even more than some men, but God has called men to eldership and to pasture the flock. So this lesson is not just about husbands and wife; it's a lesson for the church. God has a role for male and female to bring glory to himself. And so down through the church age, we've watched godly women submit to their elders because they know biblically this is God's design. Now in the home a wife may have a better understanding of scriptures, but because she has a great understanding of the scriptures, guess what she does? Submits to her husband. You see where the link is? You see how that's tied together? And that, how that's difficult when you fight the sufficiency of scriptures, when you fight passages? Now, listen, she glorifies the Lord through submission, and she's using Jesus as her example, right? We said earlier he's the greatest example for men and women. He was the perfect model throughout the New Testament as one who submits. But this is a battle that's raged for a long time. And God told us it would, right? Let's jump back to the garden. Chapter 2, we'll get to that in a minute. There, God establishes men with uh, with his dominion over the earth. He gifts him with a woman to be his helpmate. But then, however long time that was, between chapter 2 and 3, the fall comes. And God, right there in the garden, tells The woman and the man this. Verse 16 of chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet, now listen to this. Your desire will be for your husband. Male in every way in that text. There is no such thing as a female husband. The Bible is so clear on gender. It's only when man rejects God's word that they twist it. And the Bible goes on to say here, God right here says, and he will rule over you, not my words, God's. This is, this is life. This is the design that God has given. Then Adam said, excuse me, then he said to Adam, because you have, now listen to this. This is hard to hear, but you need to hear it. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, what does that mean? Well, what are you doing listening to her? She doesn't know anything. That's not what it's saying. What he's saying is, you failed to lead her. I gave you headship, not only over the world and the dominion of my creation, but I gave you headship over her to lead her, protect her, to guide her, and you failed. And now the earth is going to fight you, and it's been fighting us ever since, isn't it? Isaiah chapter three, verse twelve: Israel's a mess. God is rebuking them through the prophet Isaiah. He says, oh, my people, their oppressors oppressors are children. Children are are oppressing them. They have nothing left. And he says, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. See, when you find where there is decay and destruction, it always comes back to where man failed to believe God. And this is a a tremendous area of that. Third thing he says there in verse 3, he says, God is the head of Christ. Now, clearly throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus humbly and yet boldly proclaimed he came to do whose will? The Father's. He says it over and over. And, and, and up to, now listen, up to his incarnation and after his resurrection, Christ has always shared the glory of God. The night before his death, he's in the garden. Return to me the glory we shared. From the foundations of the world. Isaiah says, God says, I won't share my glory with another, and yet he shares it with Jesus, so they must be God. They share the essence and nature and character of God, don't they? And so we find here that at this point of incarnation, he steps out of heaven. He adds flesh to his divine nature. He willingly submits himself to the Father as he fulfills the plan of God to be Savior and Redeemer. And this was a loving act of obedience that that fulfilled through the submission. He fulfilled through submitting to the headship of his Father. That's what he did. And look, we have salvation because of this if he doesn't submit to the will of the Father, if he doesn't submit to the plan of God, you and I die and go to hell forever. And so this is a beautiful teaching of submission, isn't it? But don't be mistaken. All three of these principles are tied together. Look, you cannot have one without another. And that's what the church is trying to do today. They're trying to have the first one and the third one, but they don't like the middle one. And so the view of God gets changed. The view of who he is gets changed. The view of salvation is getting changed because of this. Do you understand how it's affecting that? You pull submission out of the doctrine of salvation, we perish. And so the Bible is teaching us that Christ submitted to the Father, and Christians submit to Christ, and women's Uh, submit to men, and, and ultimately to bring the glory to God and experience, listen, the joy he intended us to have in this life. Each act of submission in this list is driven by love, not force. The father did not force the son to go. The father did not force the son to go on the cross, leave that garden. He did it out of his free will, and this drives this whole principle of submission. And so Christ, listen, he loved the Father and he does his will. The church submits to Christ because we love Christ. And men in particular, husbands, they love Christ, which makes them easy to submit to for a wife. Now, it doesn't change the condition. the non-conditional phrases that wives submit to their husbands and husbands submit to Christ and so forth. But, but men, when we submit to Christ, we make it easy for our wives to follow us even in difficult times. So godly wives don't submit to their husbands because their husband has a greater standing before God. That's not true. Please don't buy that. They don't have a greater standing. Men don't have a greater standing. There's this equal yet different. Remember, we're equal in the grace of God, and yet we have different roles. So a godly wife doesn't submit to her husband just because he's, he has a greater standing with God. They submit to their husbands because they love Christ and they love God's design for the family. And even unsaved people do this. Some of the neatest marriages, a few. We've seen a few very neat marriages of complete pagans. And, and you see them. That little old gal still caring for her husband, even in their old age, and they're pagans, and they don't know Jesus Christ. This thing has bled. God's design has bled out through society. And we thank the Lord for it. And yes, look, I, don't, I know what's going through some of your minds. Yes, I know sin has caused a great problem, isn't it? But the, su- the solution isn't to give in to sin, to give in to Satan's way. The solution is to go back to what God teaches Now, third, the practice of divine order. Look at 4 through 6. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off... Or her head shaved. let her cover her head. Now, I know what many are thinking. <laughs> but stay with me to the end here on whether ladies should be wearing physical head coverings or not. Let's hang on here. There's a bigger principle that's being taught here. And it's the practice of divine order. So what the apostle Paul is doing now is he is going to use the example that's right in their church. He's going to use Corinth to drive home this point. Now, he uses two terms that I want to make sure we understand. First, he says praying. Praying is this intimate, private, and can be public uh, speaking with God. So praying is is vertical. When I pray, whether it's privately or publicly, I am speaking with God. Even when I pray before this message and you're all sitting there and listening, I'm really talking to God. Uh, You guys are just listening in, right? That's prayer. It's very vertical, isn't it? Prophesying, which means literally publicly declaring who God is and what God's going to do according to his word, that word has been totally abused, hasn't it, and been redefined by a charismatic culture, hasn't it? Prophesying is declaring who God is and what God is going to do. And men and women can do that. Men can do it publicly, women can do it privately with other people, and we'll get more into that. Now, This is the only place in the New Testament where we see a head covering teaching. And there's very little, as much as I studied on this, I think I studied on this lesson more than any so far in in Corinthians, but there's no or not little evidence of head coverings in any of the churches. So whatever special covering this may have been, Paul is desiring the church to live according to God's standards and not human standards. That's his goal. Now look what he says disgraces his head. Now, whatever this head covering was, it must have been referring to some local Corinthian custom, right? It seems evident of that, and I think I'll prove this to go on. The, The strong language here, though, we see in this verse, tells us that if a man covered his head, Paul is saying it is completely inappropriate. It's inappropriate for him to do it. So I believe Paul is speaking about a local custom, not a divine requirement of the church. Men were to have uh, their heads uncovered. And the reason for this is they were to display their God-given display designed for humanity and for their authority over women. Now, if a man covered his head, notice in the text there, he was displaying the rejection of God's design for humanity. And so he warns him of this. He's not to reject that proper God-given relationship between men and women. That's Paul's point. Now, down through time, women have displayed their subordination to men in many ways. Um, Women hid their hair from any men but their husband. This is still around a little bit. Our first church plant... um, a woman and some of her sons had come to know the Lord. They had been under a real cultic teaching of their husband that had passed away. And about the time we planted the church, he had died and she had gotten saved, led to Christ by her um, son, one of her sons. And But she always wore a head covering in church. And I never saw her ever without that. One day I just stopped by to check on her because she was a widow and, uh, and I caught her by surprise. And she did not have her hair covered. In fact, she had it down. She had long, beautiful gray hair. And I remember she was uh, she was so panicky because I saw her with her hair down. To her, that hair belonged only to her husband. I, I think that was a conviction she had. I can't say it was sinful or not. For, but this is the way they were taught. She was taught these things. It isn't hard to see down through history. M- women wore veils. That veil was to veil anybody else from seeing her. She was taught never to make eye contact with any other male but her own husband. She was taught to dress modestly in public. Imagine that because those things were for her husband. So they were taught that everything was was given was for God and for their husbands. And even today, in many places around the world, we just got back from the Middle East over there, and uh, there's a whole other view of, of why women cover their heads and cover their faces. Now, in Paul's day, though, I think, and as all the study I put in this, I believe in Corinth, the women covered their heads during worship services as a statement to their own husbands because of the way society was. It was so bad. And she wanted to display her love for her husband, and she particularly wanted to display her love for God in that she was submissive to God's plan for the family. But it seems something was going on in the church, though, because Paul has to deal with this. And there's some kind of movement. There's something going on within Corinth. The women are not covering their heads while they're praying and prophesying. And this is the problem. This is what Paul's directing his thoughts to. And most likely, think about it, the pagan religions that are surrounding the church of Corinth, the worldly traditions of feminism that are growing greatly, predominant in Rome, very prominent in Corinth, have now made their way into the church. In a sense, look, think about this. In the 60s, women burned their undergarments, right? In Corinth, first century, they were shedding the, the covering because they saw it as oppressive. That's what's going on. And that's what Paul is dealing with. And ultimately, all of that is display of the rejection of the plan of God for the family. Now, feminism was on the rise, and we could see it. And I said this earlier, but I want to remind you of this. In chapter 10, verse 20, it says that the worship of idols is demonically driven. And you think about everything that's going on, the goddess Diana, got goddess an Aphrodisiac, and so forth, and all these gods that Rome and Greek had, now they're producing this feminist movement out as they worship them and want to be like their gods because that's the idea of having a god is you want to worship and be like him. That's all changing the behavior, and now it's influencing the church. And those who wrote this letter to Paul, they knew this wasn't but this wasn't supposed to be, but it was their legalism or their freedoms they desired. They did not know how to handle this, and so Paul's directing his attention. Now, what's key here is the teaching, uh, the same principle. He's really teaching the same principle he taught about meat, right? And, and meat, like these head coverings, are not right or wrong, right? It's not wrong if, if any woman, and there's occasionally, we see women that come here, um, Sproul's church I, I was over there not too long ago and hanging out with David Wooten for a little bit, and he says about an eighth to a third of women wear them there. Um, it's a symbol. I don't think it's right or wrong. I think that's, a, that's something that you have to decide. But please don't let it be a standard that you push on someone else. And we'll explain that more as we go. But, but like the meat, is, if it's a rebellion in the heart of God, I mean, the heart in your heart against God, then it's a problem. So God's Word never gives us real details of how to dress. You say, well, wait a minute, it says modesty and all that. Yeah, it says that. But never, when you study God's Word, does it say, hey, women wear this, men wear that. In fact, they were all wearing dresses in the first century. So you got to be careful going down that road, right? I grew up in the 70s in very staunch Baptist churches. Your hair could not touch your ear. Gals' hymns had to be below the knee. And if you didn't do that, you were ostracized greatly. In fact, you would get demerits at school because you didn't get your hair cut because it was on your ears. And so we set standards, and pretty soon you, you lived up to the standard. And look, people love lists, but God does not. He wants us to live from our hearts, brothers and sisters. He knows what's in the heart will flow out because of the issues of life and the issues of worship and love and devotion of God need to be based in our hearts, not based in some kind of list, right? But there is selfishness there, right? And so Paul's teaching this principle of women subordination to men, not on some kind of symbol, but he's teaching to the heart. You can have all the symbols you want in your life. You can wear this and do all that and your heart be just rotten, Right? That, that can happen to us. You all, I know it. We come into church, we are in a bad place, and someone says, "How are you doing?" You go, "I'm doing great." Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> we got the outward look, we're wearing the right stuff, and yet our hearts are desperately wicked. See, Paul's not after that, and that's why we have to be careful with symbols and what we do with them. God is not after that. He's after the heart here. I firmly believe that Paul is not setting some kind of Christian universal principle for women, what they can wear and what they cannot wear for worship. Now, side note, I've got to say this. Women praying and prophesying, this passage, the the one thing they'll take out of this passage, oh, look, look, women are praying and prophesying. That is not again, out of context, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 15, women do not exercise authority over men. That's his role. He gave that, not me, not your elders. God gave that because, look, he wants men exercising certain authority that he's given to them to bring him glory, and he wants women exercising certain roles that he has for them, so he is glorified. He chose it. And when it's Obeyed to him, he is so glorified. And many wonderful things that women do glorify God. But teaching, preaching, and leading is not one of them. So the main point of these verses is that whatever men and women are engaged in in worship, they are to do so in their God-given role so they don't rob God. So when men speak of God and speak about God, Within their roles, he's glorified. When women speak about God or speak to God and speak of God in their roles, he's glorified. And if the church does not display these roles, listen, let me ask you this question who will? Who, who in this world is going to properly display the role of men and women if it isn't the church? And look at the church today it's a mess in many places. Women have taken over leadership. Men have just laid down and rolled over. Uh, In the world, just venture into the world. Is there a sitcom out there, and I don't know them all, where a guy is a decent guy? They're all the biggest wimps in the world, aren't they? And everybody sits back and laughs at it. Because that's the truth of society. That has not been God's design at all. So clearly Paul knows that God does not want the distractions between the roles of men and women that often come. He does not want these beautiful distinctions distorted. And our job is not to let that happen. Look at verse 6 real quick. For a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Wow. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head Verse 6, Paul was really driving home the point a very graphic depiction here, isn't he? And notice, when you look at verse 6, his instruction is that a woman who refuses to come to God or to speak about God outside uh, and does this outside of her God-given role, she speaks outside of that God-given role, it would be better if her head was shaved. That's strong language, isn't it? See, hair is God's given identifier to her special role as a woman. And look, in, in Paul's day, prostitutes shaved their heads. The fi- the female priests of the oracles of Delphi shaved their head and maybe sometimes the half of it. Hmm. Women who sinfully abandoned their children had their heads shaved to tell everyone what they had done. Jews mocked shaved-headed women as disgraceful. Women caught in adultery often had their heads shaved as a sign of their sin. It became a sign of power in the first century and was a sign of homosexual behavior. Oh, man. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, this is serious stuff. You don't think the Bible's relevant? You don't think the Bible's up to date on what people are doing? You read this verse and you go, Oh, my goodness. God's Word's right. Right? And listen, brothers and sisters, God's jealous of His glory, and He wants men and women to strive not to rob Him of it. Hang on to those beautiful those beautiful roles that He's given you. It's so worth it, Fourth thought: the defense of the divine order, the defense of the divine order. Look at 7 through 10, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake. Ooh, here we go. But woman for man's sake. That's an ouchie for some. Verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All right, here we go. I believe Paul, again, sees head coverings as a cultural issue in Corinth here. This is something that was going on there uniquely. But what he doesn't see is the cultural issue being brought into every church, right? He's given biblical instruction of submission and headship in regards to the creative order here. Now, notice in verse 7, he said, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. What he's saying here is God created man to bear image of himself, now listen to this, in a particular way, listen to this, men, to reflect, the headship and authority of God. Now, when men fail to lead, fail to hold to a biblical headship, they mar the view of God. Don't take this as a threat, ladies, <laughs> that God has done something different with them that is way greater in some way. It's actually a very strong challenge in a statement that I created man to display who I am as head and one who has authority. And when men do that right, lovingly and graciously and biblically, God is greatly glorified. That's his goal here. This is what he's teaching. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, man is put in charge of the garden to cultivate it and guard it. It was a clear sign of authority. In chapter 2, verse 18, woman is created to be man's helpmate a clear sense of subordination, even right from the beginning in the garden. And man glorifies God by ruling well and protecting what God has created and what God has given him. So when women glorify God by submitting to God's design for humanity, by reflecting submission of Christ to the Father, that's what you do, ladies. You bring him great glory. Again, the egalitarians will agree uh, that all of that's fine before the fall. But they say after the fall, hey, everybody's, now we're all equal in Christ, you know, and they quote Galatians three twenty-eight, 28. They quote 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where we're joint heirs of grace there. They quote all that, try to say that we're equal, and they dismiss the roles that God has given. And they blur what God wants done, and they reject how God wants his glory brought. So look, men... We reflect the glory of God through authority and protection. But then he makes this statement, which some have a very hard time swallowing, into verse 7, but the woman is the glory of man. When we put the whole verse together, what Paul is saying is that man was created to reveal the authority of God and woman was created to reveal the authority of man. It's a great responsibility. Women do that. Godly, I've watched it in my own home with my own wife. I watched it with my mother so beautifully displaying that for years and years. Even in difficult situations, honoring God, showing, showing God's plan for a woman to honor man by the way they conducted themselves. God gets so much glory from And look, Paul's point of instruction is to glorify God by showing the creative power through both men and women's roles. Both have a subordinating role to glorify God, don't they? But when it comes to the personal relationship with God, they stand in equality. They're joint heirs with grace. So in one sense, they're equal. In another sense, they're different. But in both senses, they bring uh, glory to God. And so we say that all the time. We are equal but yet different to bring glory to God. Do you believe that? Ladies, men, men, men cause a lot of problems with this because we don't uphold our role, so it's hard for them. Um, Women don't uphold their role, so men give up. And God doesn't get glorified. And this is why discipleship is important and counseling is important. Studying our Bibles, it helps us glorify God in these areas. Now, Paul defends this argument a little farther. Look at verses 8 and 9. For a man does not originate from woman, but a woman from man. Now, as noted earlier, Adam was created first, right? We know that, right? Adam was created first. He was given authority over the earth. Eve was created from Adam and given the name woman. Interesting, because she was taken out of man. Well, no wonder they can't or don't want to define the word woman. Because its whole origin goes back to God's creative design. Do you understand that? The minute they define woman, they define, truly define it, they define God's plan and they're not going to do it. Notice in verse 9 that she is not only created from man, and here's where they have difficulty, but for man. Now, now listen, this does not mean she's not brilliant. She's not morally and spiritually or even functionally inferior to man. She's in no way that. But she is different than man. And that's to bring God glory as she submits to male leadership, whether in the church or in her home. And look, this has to be more than just husbands and wives in here. I know it applies that. But think about this. When Paul ends all of his epistles, when, especially the book of Romans and a couple other ones, he gives a list of women in those that are amazing. In fact, he says that they are a vital part of the furtherance of the gospel. And so they learned, they knew their role was not preaching, teaching, teaching. On leading, God said, "No, I don't want you to do that. I have a greater role for you." And so they became these servants who served Paul and the other leaders, and the church and the gospel spread because of their service. And so this, this is not just contained in marriage, it goes further, doesn't it? And listen, in Christ, those roles become beautiful. I love it when Jean and I are clicking when we're obeying. There's beauty and there's harmony and there's joy in our home. And when we're not, it's not as joyful, huh, sweetie? We know it. We're honest with you. We love it when, when we fulfill our roles the way God intended. Now, one more statement here. He says, verse 10 here. Therefore, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Hear this it's because of the drastic nature of what was going on in Corinth. It was, it was too diverse. There was too much going on there. Paul says, Look, she needs a covering, and she's going to explain further what that is. But here it's a statement of submission. Now, then he says, Because of the angels. I've got to handle this quick because I've got to move. My last two points are quick. The angels are one of the most submissive creatures ever created. I thought this was fascinating. And I think the challenge here in this verse is to men and women to fulfill their roles so we don't offend these amazing creatures these amazing beings that serve and protect God's people see they've seen firsthand the rebellion of Satan and a third of the angels they've watched that happen they watched them reject God jealously desire his position they watched that happen and here Paul throws this little ditty in at the end of this because of the angels the Bible says that we should be careful with little ones for the sake of the angels Ephesians chapter 3 tells us to understand and grasp the manifold wisdom of God and live it out because um, the church, because throughout the church and uh, it will display the glory of God. And he goes on to say to rulers, that's government, to authorities in heavenly places. So God says this is important even for the heavenly realm. Last two points, I promise. And Hayward, don't give up on me. The balance of our divine order. Look at 11 and 10. However, in the Lord, neither a woman is independent of a man, nor is a man independent of a woman. For the woman originate from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate through God. Well, I love the balance here. And I love these two verses. See, Paul knows that authority exercised in sinfulness by a man is just as sinful as the feminist movement. He knows that. And so he seeks to show balance here. And remember, the abuse of authority by men or the lack of submission by women perverts God's design. Men, when we're abusive, we pervert. Women, when, we, when, you, when you harden your heart and don't want to submit, you pervert what God's designed. This is what he's trying to make clear here. And our lives are intertwined here. So man doesn't—he doesn't. The only authority he has is because God granted to him. He doesn't have authority on his own. God gave us authority, so we use it as a gift from God. So his authority must be used God's way. He has no right to do it his way at the same time of Christ when he was on the earth men were divorcing their wives for anything and think what Christ did Christ came he brought his word he brought truth to marriage and protection to the vulnerable and in fact today because of the true church that has applied God's word there there's no I, I, there shouldn't be at least no greater place where women are protected and men are trained how to love them and care for them than the church of Jesus Christ. And you take the church out, and if the church bails on this instruction, where are women going to go? They're going to go to the world who skips by this truth and goes to empowerment. And so God knows the church plays this great role here. Now notice this, this is real key here, our unity. Verse 11, this is done in the Lord. Done in the Lord. We can't do it. And listen husbands, wives, males, females in here, there's an intertwining here, right? Each of our roles affect the other, right? We all bring glory to God through them. And notice at the end of verse 11, God's design was never for men and women to live independent of each other. Look at that. We, we together bring this role. So if, if divorce happens, right? And sadly, it does. And some have biblical reasons for those. Others don't. But, but if it happens, now those two cannot together, intertwine together to bring God glory in both those roles. It's why God hates it. If your marriage is struggling, get help. The glory of God is there. In a way, it's hinged on your marriage, right, in this particular area. And so we're intertwined together to bring glory to God. Verse 12, he says, For the woman originated from man, so also man has his birth through woman, and all things originate from God. I love this verse. God is both the creator and designer, right? right? He created and he designed it in his perfection. He chose to create woman from man, but that was the last time it ever happened, right? From every time since, Every man has come from the creation of woman, right? That's, that's what happens. And so this is why we say men and women are equal and different, but different. And so there's an interdependency upon each other as we fulfill these roles. And I love the end of verse 12, notice this. All things originate in God. And that's got to be, that's the tripper right there. So people who fight this truth, right? You go, okay, you got to take it back to God. He's the originator of this. Now, yes, there is a certain things that God commanded women to not do. Gals, I just want to take a moment just real quickly. There are things God has commanded you not to do, namely teach, preach, and lead men. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 5, 11 through 15. However, just think for a moment. and Guys, our job is to accentuate this in their lives by the grace of God. When you think about what God uses women to, the list is unbelievable. I jotted down a few. He gave them the gift of motherhood. (laughs) Did you see the argument in the news that men can get pregnant? How insane has man got? How much of a lie Have they believed from the pit of hell to even write an article like that? And where's the medical world? Don't get me started, ladies. You're called to be mothers and nurturers. You're an indispensable role model. This is what you learn in DTP, right, Myra? And those who develop, you're the ones who develop the next generation of men from boyhood. I I certainly had my role with my boys, but my wife helped create men who left our home. You have an indispensable role in that. You guide and direct young women to strive for biblical womanhood. You constantly set examples to the church of what submission looks like and how Jesus did it and how he is our Lord and our master. The Bible says that you have hope in God. It's a lesson that we all learn from women. They have a hope in God that men often forfeit sometimes. They have ability to win the hearts of their men without a word. That's power. They order and bring consistency to life and home like no one else. And think about this. They are beautiful, they are elegant, and that declares the glory of God. God's given them beauty, natural beauty. I mean, the list goes on and on. So God made woman as this perfect complement for man and, and he made man a perfect compliment for woman because man needs a help and women need to help. Did you catch that? <laughs> I need help and she needs to help. Six, I got to finish. I'm going to see my grandson this week. We're going to see our grandson. I won't be back Sunday. So uh, Pastor Brian's going to preach Healy and He's got a great message. But I want to finish this. Lastly, the natural display of the divine order verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Now now we start to understand what he's really talking about. Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Well, in essence, Paul is now asking the Corinthians just to judge for themselves. Just judge think. In a respectful way, maybe he's saying, I want you to set aside this divine revelation that I'm giving you at this moment, to set that aside for a second and just look at creation, how God built submission into the fabric of a woman's body. He built it in. And, and, and I think he's showing this verse 14 and 15. Now he brings out the real natural beauty of her own God-given hair covering here, isn't it? I spent maybe a little too long reading articles, long articles, on why hair loss is more prominent in men than women. But it was fascinating. And whoever wrote that is in all kinds of trouble with the gender police people. (laughs) It's such a clear difference. God has clearly made a difference between men and women, even in their hair. And, And this morning, As I look through the congregation, (laughs) it's obvious from this point. Some days I think i got to wear sunglasses because of you guys. But I also see these women with hair that God's given them. Short or long, but clearly, I would say, take this right, most of you put a little effort in that today. It's a sign of beauty, isn't it? It's a way to reflect God, the way we take care of our own bodies. And look, nature itself, Paul says, just look around. Do a simple cal- calculation. Women normally have longer uh, hair than, women, than men, right? Men normally go balder, quicker, and more prominent areas. I was sitting there reading this, I was going like this. Oh, man. Women, don't take this wrong, women normally spend a little more time in front of the mirror with their hair, right? Because it's a feature God gave them to bring Him glory. I appreciate it, man. We said it from the pulpit before. If the barn needs painted, paint it. It brings glory to God. If it isn't done out of of deceit or, or, or selfishness, right? Be careful with that, but... I mean, there's just so many practical things. Men, we're like, gosh, i got to get my hair cut today. Women, like, man, I get to go to the salon today. <laughs> Us, it's just this pain. Come on, knock this stuff off. Let's go. i got things to do. Women, like, oh, the salon, man, it was so great. We talked. Had my hair washed. It genders everywhere, isn't it? Because it glorifies God. And God gave this unique way for women to show the beauty of God. And so women take time to do that in a right heart before God. Men, take a quick peek. (laughs) Verse 15: look, God gave women a natural veil. Whereas the head covering was a cultural symbol of that day, Paul is reminding them he gave you a natural veil. In that natural veil, just the way God designed you with slower growth hair. I read a ton of this, and men quickly get to this third stage quicker where we lose hair faster in most cases. Um, he, gave, he, he just created them different so that they know that they have this built-in natural veil that honors God and shows submission. He gave them this unique ability. And listen, let me say this. He gave women feminine appeal. To bring glory to God. Isn't that beautiful? Men, what have you done to let your wife show her feminine appeal to you? Do you fight her when she's trying to buy some blouse off the knockdown price list? One of the things we encourage men is do whatever you can to help her fulfill her role. She shows the glory of God through feminine appeal. And she does that Even in her hair and her dress, that cannot be from her heart, right? That can't be everything she's about. Don't be adorn yourself with this. And Peter warns them of letting it just be outwardly. But I believe a woman who loves the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned that she brings glory to him in every area. And Paul's making that point. Look, in our modern world, head coverings don't really display what God intended. They're so different in places, right? Right? And so we don't believe that this outward form of submission of wearing some veil over your head to church should be forced upon women in this modern world. I don't think that's what this is teaching. But we full-heartedly believe that God gifted women distinctly to glorify God with their beauty and their submission, which comes from their heart as they set their hope on God. I believe that firmly. And this section of Scripture should at least teach us that God purposely designed you men in one way, you women in a different way, to distinctly be different and help you reject the world's philosophy in order to bring him glory. Men, God's calling you to be examples of Christ. He's calling you to be a leader, a protector, a provider, calling you to be responsible for all God gave you, and you're to do this with loving authority in the lives of those he gifted underneath your care. Women... God is calling you to be feminine. He's calling you to be a nurturer. He's calling you to reflect the beauty of God. He's calling you to be lovingly submissive as an example of Christ in a picture of the church. Last verse, and we'll close here, and I'm so glad he wrote this verse. But if one, verse 16, is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Throughout the history of the church, there's always been a constant disregard for God's instruction, and Paul knew that. And we see it today. And so he says, if you're contentious, we don't have anything else. See, there's always this battle between people-centered and Christ and His Word-centered, right? And it rages on. It's driven by self-desires. This isn't fair, right? If this is true, God's a male chauvinist. I've actually had women tell me that. It's how far their minds have taken it. But Paul is just simply saying, look... If you desire to be contentious, I got nothing else for you. If God's word is not enough for you, the apostle is saying, as he represents all the churches, he says, there is no plan B. This is God's design for men and women. And he makes it crystal clear. So in other words, will you and I be hearers and doers of the word, or will we reject this instruction to please ourselves? Or will we attempt to reinterpret God's divine revelation for his order for the family to make it fit what we think is right? Well, finally, listen. Again, there's no right or wrong of wearing a head covering to this church. I don't think that's what it's about. But ladies, God gave you a natural one. And let it be a reminder to you of your role and how you glorify him. If you choose to wear a head covering, don't do it for self-righteous acts. Do it out of personal conviction. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word, deed, do all to the name of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him through God our Father. James 1.25 says, But the one who looks intently into the law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is it right here, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in what he does. Father, we thank you for this, Lord. I know I've gone a bit long, Lord, but it's such an important truth. We need this. Riverbend Church needs this. We need to be reminded that every, these dear brothers and sisters, these dear male and female people that you chose to create them uniquely in your image, Lord, we all bear a responsibility to bring them glory with what you have given us, Lord given us in gender, given us in roles in marriage, given us in this world to show that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, help us bear these truths out. Oh, our world needs this. The world needs an example of people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May husbands picture that and may wives picture that for your glory and certainly for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.